it comes to, to preaching, I ask two questions of every sermon I preach. The first is the most important. How does this leave people dependent on God? But what am I saying that will not work unless God himself is active in the life of the person who's listening? We are officially into May, hoping that means good weather is coming wherever you are listening from. Jason, what is the best part about summer in Vancouver? Um, this is like a classic Canadian small talk weather conversation, isn't it? Like that's what we're doing right now is just breaking yep. the ice. The weather. Hey, I love it. But that's everywhere I go in Vancouver right now. It's like it's about how nice it was to have some sun. But then also it's too bad it's rainy. We got rain in the forecast. But honestly, when, when it gets sunny in Vancouver, the city just changes. Like it goes from like everyone hidden to everyone out and about. And I don't know how many pastors and ministry friends I've talked to have been like, man, just a bit of sun. And I'm a happier, healthier whole person. At our church, Leash, we titled Easter like Hope on the Horizon. And uh, I really feel like when the sun comes out, people are like, there is hope. Like there is there's an end in sight. So that's pretty exciting. I love that. In Calgary, it's just kind of chaos in the summer because there's scooters and right. they're ripping everywhere and people are jumping out of the way and getting in accidents and it's hilarious, but they're so fun. So for people that so don't I'm know, when that. you say scooters, it's like literally everywhere you go, there are electric rental scooters you can get. And they're yeah. amazing. They don't, they're not allowed in Vancouver. The bylaws won't let it happen. I, I don't want to brag, Leash, but I own my own personal electric scooter yeah. that I commute wow. to and from work on. Um, just because we as our city hasn't allowed the rentals to come in yet. Mm -hmm. You can brag. That's fine. That's a pretty incredible thing. Is that what we're here to talk about on the podcast today is scooters? Yeah, we're here to actually promote the scooters. And today I'm going to tell you about four different brands. It'd be great if Bird was our sponsor though. That would be exciting. Hey. But they're not. Hey. No, too bad. But anyways, this week we have a really incredible guest. Why don't you tell us a bit about him? Okay, so it's Charles Price. I heard Charles Price preaching on TV. He was the pastor at People's Church for a long time. They've had an incredible ministry in Toronto, but also in broadcast, which is something that's impacted a lot of lives. I first was told about Charles Price from my grandpa, who said, you've got to hear this preacher. And I have a real soft spot for people who have done decades and decades of ministry, because I really feel like right now, more than we need to look at people who've got like hundreds of thousands of Instagram followers, but only 15 years of ministry in their belt, we need to look at people who have run the whole race of ministry, who have finished well. And so we reached out to Charles Price because we wanted to talk to him about life and ministry and the opportunities he's had. And we talked about evangelism and about preaching and about weighing ministry opportunities, even discernment, like how he moved from one season to another. And it was just so exciting to hear him share about decades of ministry and all that was going on in his life. It's a great conversation. I'm excited for people listening. And the thing that I think I talked about in the interview, I don't know if it came out, was just how much joy he had on his face when he talked about evangelism, when he talked about ministry. And he had this sense of like lightness about even look reflect on the past. Like, you know, you can't get it all right. You just kind of take those steps. And that kind of served me in a really special way as I listened and enjoyed the conversation. Wow. So good. That's amazing. I love that. Well, before we get into that conversation, just a heads up that next week we won't have a podcast coming out because we are changing up our rhythms a little bit for the summer. Just like all of you, our team wants to ensure that we rest well, get quality time with family and friends, enjoy the summer, all of that. Uh, So for the next few months, we are going to be moving to bi-weekly episodes. But next week, we do have something special to share. Why do you want to tell them, Jason, maybe tell us about it? Okay, I've got two special things to share. First of all, as we're going bi-weekly, we're trying to put more intentionality into each episode. And so one of the ways that we're going to do that is our good friend, Anne Miranda, who's helped host before and has been a guest on the podcast, is going to start capturing shorter mini interviews with other Canadian pastors and ministry leaders across the country just to profile the interesting, dynamic, and unique things that are happening across our countries, the highs, lows, the unique challenges, the unique opportunities. And so Anne's going to begin to do that. So you're going to begin to hear those coming out at the end of each episode, which is really fun. So we'll still have the main interview with a thought leader or guest. They'll also have an opportunity to share more stories. And hey, if you're listening and you want to either introduce someone that you think should be profiled or hear their story, 
or you want to share a little bit about what you're experiencing and learning in your church context in Canada, you can reach out to us at contact at cclm.ca. So we'd love to hear from you, connect, and maybe even share your story. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, I think I'm going to tease this out. I think I'm going to leave it as a cliffhanger. We want people to know that CCLM is more than just a podcast. It really is just a tiny piece of what we feel on our hearts to do. We want to champion the cause of the church across Canada. And something we've been dreaming about for a long time, we're going to launch next week. So I'll just leave it at that. News about it's going to come out. It's a special program that we believe will contribute to seeding a hopeful future for the church in Canada. So I'll just say that for now. I'll leave it there. Wow. What a tease. Yeah, how is well, that? That's a good on like, that, I love it. I love it. On that cliffhanger, let's just jump right into your conversation with Pastor Charles Price. Well, hey, Charles Price, it is such a privilege for me to be with you today. Thank you for making time to hang out with us. It's great to meet you and to chat with you. Um, I, I feel like I've known you from a distance, uh, hearing your teachings and your speaking. You've got an incredible legacy of ministry. And I'd love just to start if you would take us and the listeners to um, just the early days of being called into ministry. What, what, was there a moment or a series of events that gave you the conviction, I think I'm meant to give my whole life to build a local church? Yeah, I, I came to Christ when I was 12 through a Billy Graham film they used to have in those days called Shadow of the Boomerang. It was filmed against the background of an Australian mission that he had done. And uh, I, I went, it was a Youth for Christ event. And at the end of that film, I knew I wasn't a Christian and I knew I wanted to become one. And somebody got up at the front and invited people to come forward. And I didn't move because I was too shy to do anything public like that. But I prayed. don't remember the prayer. But what I do remember is the next day, it was a Saturday night, I went to the church I'd grown up in. My parents had taken me to since I was a kid. And for the first time, the service was interesting. Mm. I went back on Sunday night for the first time. The preacher made sense. Mm. And I thought, these people have changed overnight. And I realized, of course, that I had an appetite I never had before. So I, I, I knew I was a Christian because something in me had changed. Mm. And uh, I had a what Jesus called a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. Didn't see it in that way. But I, I certainly had an appetite that, uh, that, that began to be fed. And I tried hard then to live for Christ. My understanding was, now you're a Christian, you're going to go to heaven you know, live, live the life, do your best to live the life. And it was pushing a bus up a hill. And I was utterly frustrated. And then uh, when I was uh, a few years later, I spent a summer working at a place called Cape Mary Hall in England, just hmm. on volunteer staff. And there was a conference grounds, Bible school, but you're on the summer conferences. And that summer, I, I came to understand that I can't live the Christian life. And hmm. God never said I could. But he said that Christ could and that he promised he would if I let him. Without me, you can do nothing. And what transformed my life at that point was the realization that when I received Christ, I actually received Christ. I thought I received a ticket that gave me a one-way journey to heaven, a certificate that said my sins had been forgiven, signed by God a catalog called the Bible, which told me all the good things I can get from God if I put in my order, which is called praying. So if I needed love, just pray, get a tube of love, a bit like toothpaste squeezed on your inside and go all lovely for a little while. You need power, just ask God for a stick of dynamite, light it and let it explode. And then you go back to normal afterwards. And, and it was all getting things from God, things from God. And then I understood that the only thing God had to give me was himself. And then mm. everything else was the outworking of the presence of, of Christ in me. That changed my whole life. And I immediately sensed that God would lead me into, into ministry. Mm. Um, initially, I thought I would become an evangelist. Uh, that was my initial sense, preach the gospel. Uh, moving around, you know, we had lots of evangelists. I grew up in the west of England. We had lots of evangelists who were busy back in those days. This is this is uh, back in the 60s now. Hmm. <laughs> and uh, uh, I, I eventually went to, to uh, Bible school, went to college. At the end of that time, cut the story short, in that time I was in my mid-20s. 
And uh, I wasn't sure exactly what I was going to do at the end of it. Am I going to go into a pastoral ministry, into evangelistic ministry, into some other form of ministry? I wasn't sure. But when I left college there, and uh, I had a summer full of invitations to run camps and conferences and youth events and so on. I, did, I thought, well, I'll do that and see what works out at the end of it. At the end of it, my fall was full with things to do. So I, I kept going. I thought, I don't want to do this on my own individually. I'd like to be part of something bigger where I'm, I'm accountable and, and part of a team. And at the end of the year, I had six possibilities that were presented to me. Three of them were with evangelistic ministries. Uh, two of them were with were pastoring churches uh, or being on the pastoral team of a church. And uh, one of them was part of the administration, part preaching. I didn't know which of these six was <laughs> the right one. They all had their attractions. And uh, I went to see a very wise friend of mine. And I said, which of these do you think is the right one? Told him what they all were. And he said, probably none of them. I said, why? He said, if you're saying, should I be an evangelist? Should I be a pastor? Should I be an administrator? You clearly don't have a vision of what your life is supposed to be. Hmm. I said, what do you mean by that? And he told me stories of people who knew, who'd really been fruitful, had all been characterized by, by a clear vision. He told me about folks in scripture, you know, Abraham left, didn't know where he was going, but he had a vision from God. And Paul says, I was not disobedient to that vision from heaven and so on. So I said to him, well, how do I get a vision? He said, I don't know. You have to deal with that with God yourself. So he said, uh, I, I'm not going to give you any advice about that. Just go and talk to God about where you get your vision from, what is it going to be? So I left him and uh, I decided I'd take three days to go away on my own. And I found a place where I could get a bed and, and, and stay there, where I'd be completely on my own. I spent three days walking, thinking, talking, praying. I asked the question, how do I know what a vision is? And the verse that mm. became strong to me was a verse in, in, in Psalm 37, delight yourself in the Lord, he will give you the desires of your heart. There's a wrong way and right way to read that verse. The wrong way is, delight yourself in God, he gives you whatever you want. The Come right on. way is... <laughs> Like yourself in God, and the desires of your heart will be God-given. He will give you mm. the desires. So I dared to ask the question, what would I really want to do? What would I really like to do if I could just do what I wanted? Mm. Because so often we get caught up in the dilemma, is it me, is it God? Well, the answer could be it's both. It is you, because it's God, because you delight yourself in him, and he puts those desires into your heart. After three days... I came away with six things that I felt my future would consist of. And uh, they, were, they were things that I thought these seemed crazy, but this is what I really, this is what I really like to do. The six invitations I had didn't fit, in, didn't fit. So I wrote them all and said, thanks for your invitation, but it's not, I don't think it's the right thing. But I was left with nothing. Was that hard to do at the moment yeah, it to was. say no? I actually said no to four easily. I kept hold of two. I thought I'll keep them as backup, but they didn't fit what I'd really thought. This would I would, if I could write my own story. This is what I'd write. But a week later, I called in at uh, Cape and Ray Hall, which was uh, you know, I knew well, just to stay overnight. And uh, Major Ian Thomas, who had founded that work, was home. He was normally away traveling all over the world, but he was home. And he said, "Come and have a cup of tea with me." So I went to, had a cup of tea with him, and he said, "What are you doing with your life?" I said, "I'm not sure." He said, how'd you like to work with us? I said, what have you got in mind? And he gave me the six things on my piece of paper. Wow. And I, I said to him, I, I have written down six things that I felt my future would consist of. They were in a different order and different wording. But he said, that's pretty well what I've just said to you. I said, I know it is. He said, well, it looks pretty obvious, doesn't it? I said, yeah, I think it does. He said, let's backdate mm -hmm. it at midnight last night. And uh, he said, let's say as of midnight last night, you're, you're part of our team. Uh, your job description, I'm not going to write it down, is two words long, preach Christ. If wow. you stop doing that, we won't be interested in you. Second thing, your salary, we won't write that down, there isn't one. He said, uh, you're going to be out on the road some of the time preaching, teaching, folks uh, will we'll give you honorariums. You're going to have to deal with that and live with that because uh, we don't have any spare money to pay you anything. And you'll be out a lot of the time, that was the idea. 
So that, that's what happened. I stayed at Cape Murray Hall uh, for 26 years, leading their Bible school, laterally. And um, I was also traveling and speaking at conferences, mm. churches, conventions, and so on as well. And then at the end of that, we came to Toronto to the People's Church. It wasn't something I had planned to do. Um, and uh, there's a story behind how it came about, but it became very evident it was it was the right thing. And so we came mm. 20 years ago to Toronto in 2001. And we're glad that God brought you to Canada. <laughs> well, I came in, 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 into Toronto, into the People's Church as a cross-country, a cross-cultural missionary in every sense. I'd only mm. ever lived in the countryside. I grew up in a farming area, never had a neighbor in my life, and suddenly I'm living in a city. Mm. That was totally new. Um, I had never been part of a church that had more than 30 people who were members. I'd been in village churches. When we were at Cape May, we belonged to a little church. I suddenly came to the People's Church at that stage, it was about 2000. And uh, so I'm thrust into it. I'd never been a pastor before. You know, I was thrust into a totally new environment. But uh, it, was, it was an exciting time. Mm. I, I've retired from the leadership there now. They call me pastor at large just as a an identity to keep with them but um yeah that was that was uh, that was a, a stretching time a learning time hard time yeah. lots of tears as well as lots of joys yeah i would love to chat more about uh some of those joys and struggles you referred to at your time at people's church but before we do that i want to just for a moment reflect back on your growth as a communicator and bible teacher um i think for everyone who's speaking in any capacity, there's a real journey of finding your own voice, yeah. your own style, but also your convictions as a communicator. Like there's a, there's a set of convictions you bring. Um, and so I just would love for you to kind of share a bit about how you formed your convictions as an evangelist and a Bible teacher, but also found your voice. Well, I mentioned that when I was 16, I had this, uh, this, this, realization that it was Christ in me, not, not, not me trying to live for him. And uh, when I went back home from the summer conference at Cape May, I had a friend and he had found something similar. And we decided we'd try to try and reach young people in our city, which was Hereford in the west of England. And um, we got four of us together. We started going into coffee bars, but then we started preaching on the streets. So this is cutting it all very short, but from the time I was 16, I started preaching. I first preached in a church when I was 16 because we did these, these street preaching. We got permission from the police to do something on a Saturday afternoon. And uh, we had crazy things like we'd have uh, uh, one of us would go 50 meters over in one direction. One would stand here and the first one would shout, fire! You see, so everybody stops and looks around. So the, first, the second one says, where is it? And you're starting to walk towards each other. He says, it's in hell. Who's it for? It's for all these people out here. How can they escape? You know, I wouldn't do that now at all. <laughs> it kind of got people stopping and listening. We did a few little skits like that, and then we would, we would speak. And then one day a lady walked by from a little village church. She said, we don't have a pastor. We don't have many people. Would you come and take a service on a Sunday evening? Most services were Sunday evening in those days. And uh, we said, sure we would. And so... By the time I was 18, we were preaching every week. Hmm. So I and, and also started a youth ministry, which I was one of the leaders of every Friday night. We, we had Bible studies then on a Wednesday night for some of those who were coming to Christ. So I think I got busy. And what happened con subsequently was a natural outflow of that. I think when people say to me, I... I, I feel God has called me to ministry. I said, well, get involved in, in ministry in some way. Um, Martin Gladwell wrote a book called um, 10,000 Hours. I don't know if you read it. Yeah. He talked about how that, you know, if one of many, say the Beatles, you know, they, they played in Hamburg in Germany for eight months for six hours a night, six hours mm. a night. They'd have to get up and just keep going for six hours. And he said, it's those kind of uh, many hours of, of playing that made them what they became. And he gave a similar example, Bill Gates and, and other folks. 
And as I look back, I am grateful that before I ever went into full-time ministry, I had preached hundreds of times. And so there was that, that, uh, that, that experience which, which um, I was privileged to get, but we created it really. We created it by saying, let's go out and we're called to preach. In fact, the four of us all went into full-time ministry of different kinds, mm. subsequently. And then we were joined by others. We built quite a big team eventually. Um, and many of them went into ministry and they did so because they, 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 they whetted their appetite by, by the experience of, of, of being young. I think too, when it comes to, to preaching, I ask two questions of every sermon I preach. The first is the most important. How does this leave people dependent on God? Hmm. In other words, I'm not giving them a to-do list or a bit of psychological process that may help them. All of that has its place, of course. But what am I saying that will not work unless God himself is active in the life of the person who's listening? Hmm. And so it takes people back to dependence on, on him, dependence on Christ. And I ask that of every sermon I preach. And I think that is, uh, that is to me, the key to effective uh, ministry. Effective ministry is fruitful. You can, you can communicate well and people say, oh, it was great, you know, but it doesn't do anything long-term. But what is fruitful is that you, you, you lead people with the, required to do, with the requirement to do business with God themselves to make this work and make this happen. Mm. And uh, the second thing is, is, is less significant, but it's been important for me. I ask, would a 12-year-old understand this? Mm. It doesn't make it shallow, it makes it simple. And I think it's important that we, we think hard about being simple so that anybody can understand it. And I remember after being at People's Church for, for a few years, there was a, a family I'd never met before who came and sat on the second row towards the front. And uh, parents and, well, actually it was a father and two children at that point. And uh, the son came up to me afterwards and, and introduced himself. And I said, how old are you, son? Twelve. I said, you know, I prepared this message for you, and every message I prepare is for you. So I want you to sit in that same seat every Sunday, and I want you to tell me what you didn't understand afterwards, and be honest with me. And uh, uh, and so he's now he's now in his mid twenties, but he was there for years. And mm. I'd, I'd say, Chris, did you get it? Even when he got up to sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, etc. And he came to the Lord, and he's a great he's a great guy. But, uh, as, you know, in my mind, I, I envisage that. Would a 12-year-old understand it? Hmm. 80% of folks who come to Christ, so they tell us statistically, come to Christ by the time they're 12. So I think that's a key age. Hmm. I've always felt that's a key age. Hmm. Uh, I was 12 when I became a Christian, so maybe that's why. But um, hmm. So those are the two things. How does this leave you dependent on Christ? There are obviously some issues you deal with that are you're dealing with 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 the issues that are informational. But preaching, as opposed to teaching, I think there's a difference. Mm. Uh, preaching is is uh, mostly people dependent on on God. Mm. Oh, I'm so grateful for that wisdom. I wonder, just before we move on, if you've got any other advice for growing communicators, growing preachers. And even, I wonder if you might have some unique advice for this season. A lot of us are preaching. Maybe we're used to preaching to rooms and we're preaching yeah. to cameras. Yeah. And uh, I know that part of your your experience was moving to radio and to television. And, and while there was often still, I know you're still communicating to a room, there's new dynamics. And I just wonder if there's any wisdom that you might pass on um, that you haven't mentioned yet. Yes, I find it hard speaking to a camera as opposed to people. And I think all of us do. In, in, in communication, there are two things going on. There's what you're saying and there's what people are hearing. And what people are hearing is conditioned by a multitude of things. It's conditioned by what they already know, for instance. You might be adding to something. You might be so different in what they're hearing. They have no foundation to connect it to. So it just goes over their heads. But also there's their experience of life. 
and uh, people have been through tough times, have been through sadnesses, have been through joys. And when you're with people, you can read, you learn to read what is going mm -hmm. on. I also made it, made it an intentional thing in thinking about when I'm preparing that I don't speak to a crowd, I speak to individuals. Mm. I personally would never say things like, good morning church, because it's a big group. You're just lumping everybody into one big group. I would say good morning. And it's to you, you know, it's, it's, it's yeah. hopefully connecting with the individual. So I, um, I'm more inclined to say you than we all kind of thing. I mean, there are those times, but I, I used to select somebody in the congregation. This is years ago. Somebody sitting over, get up there, look around. Okay, there's a guy there who's got, who looks, who's, you know, I'm going to pick on. Not to talk to them, but to think they're listening to me. Am I making sense? Connect with their responses. And um, now, I don't do that to an individual now. I haven't done for years, but I found it helpful to do that. Hmm. But ultimately, you know, it's individuals that are responding to God. And it's, it's an individual thing, not a group thing. So when you're talking in a camera, you can't read that second part of the communication, the receptive element. You've got to just... Yeah. And of course, what we did on television and radio was uh, was taken from our main services. So, so yeah. it wasn't, usually it wasn't specific to that. Why don't you um, take us to 2000, 2001, mm. moving to Toronto and... and Tell us a bit about the decision to come and then the journey that you went as the church began to, a big church already began to grow. And I just love to hear about that part of the story and the work you're able to do in Toronto. Yes. I first preached in the People's Church way back in the mid-1980s. I came and did a whole month. They asked me to come and do a month where I spoke every Sunday and a couple of midweek things. They had what they used to call a summer Bible school where they'd have this midweek things as well. And um, I, in that month, found a rapport with the church and with the people. So much so at the end of it, the guy who was then the pastor, Paul Smith, said to me, when I get to 70, I'm going to step down. I'm now 64 or 5 or something. I want you to think about coming to replace me in five years. Well, I said, uh, is, that, is that a serious thing? He's you're talking five years. He said, yeah, that's serious. I said, okay, I'm not sure what to do about that, but uh, get in touch in four and a half years' time and see what happens. <laughs> then he announced he had said that to me, to the congregation, at the last service, which is a bit difficult for everybody because, uh, okay, what does that mean? Anyway, uh, those years went by and, and nothing ever came of it. Nothing ever came of it. Uh, I've since learned some of the internal politics that, that, that went on. Sure. But um, back in 2000, I came, and they put it, they, they appointed another pastor, a guy called John Hull. I came to Toronto to speak at the Toronto Spiritual Life Convention, it was called. It's held every year for, for Sunday to Thursday or Wednesday. And I came from England to be the speaker at that as an inter-church event. And when I was on the platform one night, I had a strange sensation. Everything in that building was familiar to me. Every brick, every pew, every light looked familiar in a, in a strange way. And it was a sensation that came and it went. I almost talked to somebody about it, but I'm glad I didn't. But I went home and I told my wife this, and she said, I had the sense that when you came back from Toronto, you'd tell me something that would change our lives. And I said, well, I don't know what this is. Um, of course, we had that history, which could have been lurking in the background and playing games. About six weeks later, I had an email from somebody saying, just casually, did I know John Hull was leaving the People's Church? And I knew immediately what that means is that we're going to go to the people's church. Wow. 
I sensed it in my in my heart, and so did my wife. But we decided we'd do nothing to push any interest in this. We would let it become entirely on the initiative of the church. A few weeks later, I was in California speaking at something. I had a phone call from the executive pastor saying, you know, we're looking for a new pastor. You probably know. So in the meantime, we need to invite people to fill the pulpit. Would you come for a weekend? And uh, he said, there's no agenda. It's just coming and filling the pulpit for a weekend. So he gave me some dates, and I wasn't free for any of them. I said, sorry, I'm not free for any of those dates. And I called my wife, and I said, you know, I've just had a call from the People's Church. But I said no, because the dates they offer, I'm not free. I'm not going to change anything. We thought we won't do anything to help this, to make it work. So she said, good. And a few weeks later, another phone call saying, yeah, we've had a cancellation. Are you free on a certain weekend? And I'd kept that weekend free to be at home. But um, I said, sure, I'll come. So I came over and uh, they said, would you meet with the board? You know the church, you know uh, people. Maybe you can give them some advice. You may have some names you could suggest to us. And so I met with the board on the Saturday morning, came on Friday, met the board on Saturday morning. And and they said, uh, I said, what kind of pastor are you looking for? And they, they didn't have a clear idea about that. But at the end of that morning, they said, we'd be interested in you if you'd be interested in talking with us. So I said, I'm not looking for a church. I wasn't. And uh, anyway, 18 months later, I, we came. So wow. we felt God's hand was in that. Um, and it was very interesting that the day they called me to ask me if I would come, say so they've made the decision. I was sitting in my office at Cape and Ray in England. I was dressed in my best suit because I was just about to go to the funeral of the best man we had at Cape Murray. He had died suddenly, unexpectedly of a heart attack. Mm. And uh, I picked up the phone. It was the chairman of the board. And I said, this is the worst possible moment for you to call me. We just lost our best man and, and we can't afford to lose too many people. Right at this moment, the answer has to be no. But call me back another time. And uh, they did. And it was, it was right. We felt it was right to go. But I think, you know, often when God leads us, something will arise. There will be a good reason not to follow that leading. Hmm. I feel it's a bit like, you know, when the disciples didn't catch any fish and, uh, and Jesus said, throw the net the other side. And they caught this big load and the ship was just about sinking and they hauled it into the into the land and Jesus said leave it and come and follow me many could have said hey give us a week we can set ourselves up for three yeah. on the benefits of this load of fish it's the biggest load we've ever had you know and I think um, uh, that time I, I had to say I, I said yes to the peoples knowing I was creating a big problem in doing so back in mm. Cape and Ray, which meant so much to me and still does. It's a, it's a place that's always meant a lot to me. And uh, so I, I think I think as a principle, God calls us to things, not from things. I, I, I think we can all leave and go from things often because it gets tough and difficult to let me go somewhere else. It would be easier. I think, I, I think we, we need to wait for that beckoning, drawing call to something. And uh, so there are lots of details that are not interesting mm. to everybody but that go into all of that. But anyway, so we came, arrived. My uh, first day was the 10th of September 2001. My second day was 9-11. So we, 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 we came in right at the beginning of that whole mm. change of Western society that came about because yeah. of yeah. So my first sermon was the following Sunday. I I thought long and hard. What well, I'm going to say my first message. I had to throw it out the window and and, and give a message that responded to to the whole 9/11 tragedy. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. And then, as you look back on, it was 15 years that you were yes. in that pr primary leadership seat. I mean, it is. There's no easy way to to do the topography of 15 years. But what are some of the the movements? You know, like. With in your leadership and in the church, and some of the highs and maybe lows of that ministry season. Yes, there were many highs. Um, 
in uh, in, in in people coming to Christ. And mm -hmm. one of the things I, I learned, uh, and I think it's a, it's a good thing to share with you. I mean, there are a lot of internal things that went on that are not appropriate to bring out into the public sure. domain, obviously. But you know, we 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 thought long and hard about our strategies for how we're going to reach the city, evangelism, and so on. And and, and these are good and necessary. But most of the real converts who stuck and in turn became leaders didn't come to the ways that we had planned. They came into mm. the window where nobody was looking kind of thing. We, you know, we opened the door wide and say, come, come, this is where we're going to see our converts. And they came in other ways. And I, I, you know, I could give a number of stories of that. I'll, I'll give you one if you like. A, a young man called me one day, <coughs> said, can I come and see you uh, and chat you? I said, sure. Made a time, came in on Thursday, on a Thursday evening, an Iranian young man. And he came and sat down and he, he said, uh, I don't know what the meaning of life is, but it must have meaning. He said, I've looked in Islam, I've looked in New Age stuff, I've looked in, in self-help things and none of it works. So I thought to myself, I'll find out if Christian has anything to say. So he said, I, I came to the People's Church last Sunday. He said, it's the only church I'd ever noticed and I only noticed it because I played soccer in the parking lot with some friends and we mm. got driven out. <laughs> so he said, uh, I decided to come last Sunday. I sat up in the balcony. And when I left, I hadn't understood a single word of anything I'd heard. If somebody said, put one sentence together, what did they say? I couldn't even put a sentence together. But although I didn't understand the word, I knew it was true. Wow. So he said to me, what is it that's true? So I said, well, you said, wow, that's a big question. Interesting. A anyway, I had a Bible study group for young men at that stage. We met once a month on a Monday night. We'd meet about six at pizza. We'd stay till about midnight sometimes. We, just, we were going through Matthew's gospel, but we really talked about everything under the sun that the young men are dealing with. It was just guys. Most were, were new Christians, some weren't yet. He joined that group, and, um, and he came to Christ uh, and and grew in leaps and bounds. He started a Bible study down at the university. He was a student there in the University of Toronto. And, uh, and uh, why that story is interesting to me is because he is now my son-in-law. Wow. <laughs> Married my daughter. They're missionaries Amazing. in South Africa. They're missionaries now in South Africa. Wow. Um, but you see, what that's symptomatic of and I could give you a number of stories, some of them dramatic, actually. What's that symptomatic is that God is at work in people's lives, and we have no idea what's going on. Mm. What started, you know, I think when, when Jesus said uh, to the disciples in John chapter 4, when, when he sent them into Samaria and they came back, they'd missed the woman who was walking out to draw water. <clears throat> Jesus said to them, I send you to reap a harvest you not work for. Others have done the hard work and you were to enter into their labor. And that begs the question, who'd been doing the hard work? If, right. if you know, was, was it her failed marriages? Was it, uh, she had five of them? Uh, was it, was it, it wasn't one of the disciples? And there's work going on in people's lives we know nothing about. Hmm. Now with my son-in-law, Fazem is his name. He says that uh, when he was in high school in Tehran, uh, he was uh, at a party with some of his friends and they got a taxi back home and the four or five of them in the taxi and he went to drop at each of their homes and uh, they were talking between themselves about the girls and all kinds of things. It was not good talk. And uh, when they got to the first house to drop off the first boy, the taxi driver stopped his taxi, turned off his engine, turned around and said to these boys, do you boys never think about God? <clears throat> he was a Muslim taxi driver. And uh, Fasman went to bed that night and couldn't sleep. Do you never think about God? And I never think about God. And that so planted a seed in him mm. that began to grow and germinate. And it was 
growing without any idea who that God or what that God might be. He was by process of elimination, getting rid of Allah because he realized that's, that can't be right, etc. He came to Christ. So, you know, we, we, we sometimes think about evangelism, though we've got to persuade people who have no interest at all. Uh, we've got we've got to awaken something that isn't that isn't birthed yet. We've got to do this. Now I think we have to seek to work with people in whose hearts there's already a birthing that has taken place. Now how you discern that? There's no answer to that question. But sometimes you discern it very easily. Sometimes you think there's nothing going on here, and sometimes there isn't. Sometimes there is. You just just be faithful. But I think these these guys uh, and girls who, who've come to Christ uh, that we saw in this dramatic way. I'll tell you one other story. Please, please do. It was a Mormon bishop on his way to his church. He wasn't preaching that Sunday, so he was a bit later than normal. It was the first fall of snow of the winter, and everything was moving slowly. He got. He had to pass the people's church, but this time he was a bit later than normal. He got there at the timing of our second service when the traffic were lined up to come into the church and they were lined up and the snow had slowed it down. And he was sitting in the line frustrated, you know, to get past the people's church. And his son in the back seat said, why don't we go here instead, Dad? He said, Dobby's so silly. And... Uh, when they got to the people's church, the car in front pulled into the parking lot and he followed it in. And his wife said, what are you doing? He said, I don't know. Let's just go here and do something different. They came in. At the end of the service, I, was, I used to stand at the front and talk to folks who came. And I saw this couple. I remember noticing them, six, seven people back in the line. I thought, I don't know them. But I, there, there was some about their face that was quite intent. Was it anger? Was it frustration? Was it, I didn't know what it was. But it wasn't just the normal relaxed, I didn't see you this morning that sometimes people come with. When I got to them, he pointed right at me and said, who told you I was coming here today? Wow. I said, uh, I don't think I know you. He said, no, you don't know me. But somebody told you I was coming. I said, why did you say that? He said, because you described me exactly this morning. I mm. said, ah, then I know who that was. It was the Holy Spirit. He doesn't tell you who, he's, who it's for, but that must be the Holy Spirit. And we t I took him into my study. He told me I'm a Mormon bishop. I didn't know that when we started the conversation. Anyway, he came to Christ, went back to his church the next week, told them what had happened, and he invited them to come with him to our Sunday night service that we we're having at that stage. Mm. And he brought half his congregation with it. And um, the subsequent event of this was it caused such a havoc in the Mormon church in Toronto that his particular congregation he was leading, which was a smaller one out near where we were, they closed the church. They sold the building because of the damage that he was doing. Wow. And, uh, and, and uh, I, I see him, whenever I see him sitting there, I think, thank you, Lord. But, you know, when I talked to him, you know, weeks, months later, we baptized him. And his kids came to Christ in our youth ministry a bit later on. We baptized the whole family together. You know, Mormons are baptized, but Mormons are baptized for every granny they can think of and great-grandmother. And, and I said, how many times have you been baptized now? He said, this is my first time in Christ. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, so, you know, we didn't have a strategy for reaching Mormon bishops. Or for disillusioned Muslim young people. We didn't have any strategy for that. Mine, some of our best converts too have come in through Alpha. We, we started Alpha soon after I arrived there and, um, and other things. But uh, this is the adventure. You know, mm -hmm. it's like Philip preaching in Samaria and the Holy Spirit said, Go to the desert road that goes down to Gaza. And he left this evangelistic event in Samaria where he was the key preacher uh, to go down the desert road. What are you doing on the desert road? What do you go to the desert road for? And, you know, I can imagine the kind of dialogue that could have gone on where Philip could easily have said, but I'm the, I'm the evangelist here. I'm the key guy in this revival that's taking place. There's no going on the desert road, you know. Am I going to go and preach the cactus? What is it? But it says, 
he arose and he went. Just says, so he went, or something like that. So, so he left. And uh, I, I learned from that, that that Philip was not committed to evangelism. He was committed to God. Mm. If you're committed to a cause, we'll probably run that cause into the ground and end up disheartened. When God told Abraham he would have a son, and nothing happened for twenty, for, nothing happened for ten years. There was no baby. He produced Ishmael through the maid Hagar, the family maid. You know, he fathered Ishmael because he's committed to the cause. He had never thought of himself. God told him he would have a son. Well, it's not working, so I'll, I'll produce the son. But he did it through his own means, rather than waiting to allow what seemed impossible, Sarah at 90 to conceive. And that's why, again, I said, let's not commit us. Let's have causes that are important. Let's say this is what we're doing. But our commitment is not to that cause. Our commitment is to God. And there may be mm. unexpected times there's a course change or there's some aberration to what we assume would be the, the, the progress. So staying flexible, that, that's hard for people to do. I think in, as leaders, we have to do that. Yeah. I think it's hard for people down, you know, who, who are, I mean, there's some people who, who have to take responsibility for what's the initial direction, where are we going, what are we doing? And people say, yeah, I'm with you on that. I'm joining you. And they take that cue from you. But I think those of us who are, who are in leadership have to be, have to be nimble and flexible. Mm. I am, I've been very impacted by what you're sharing. Most people are listening to us. I'm seeing you on Zoom. And, um, when you talk about evangelism, you, you light up and it's really impacting me. You talk about people getting saved. You talk about that. And I just, um, just love that. Love seeing the way you light up at the thought of people come to know Jesus and the stories of evangelism, even the funny stories of a skit in the, in the streets. And I just, I think, I think, and I don't have words for this yet. I think that there are two things happening. One is a movement that I don't think of God, which is a, a cynicism about evangelism in the church. And then there's a move of the spirit where hearts, I think Canada are being softened to the Lord again. Mm. And I just think there's a great opportunity in this moment for the church to join what God is doing, not yeah. with a big strategy. There's a lot of conversation. What's the strategy? And, I, and I'm fine with strategy, but it's like, I just, I think God's doing it and we just are so invited to jump in. I just, yeah, yeah. does that resonate with you at all? Absolutely it does because we're, he's the Lord of the harvest. He knows where the harvest is and the harvest is not mass, it's individuals. You know, Jesus calling of disciples was, it was not in mass. He didn't at the end of feeding the 5,000 say, now then all of you, you've benefited, you've had a, this great meal, you've seen this wonderful act. I want to invite you now to come down to the front and become my disciple. His invitation to disciples was, was individual. Now I know 3,000 were saved in the day of Pentecost and so on, so I'm a great believer in, in, in crowds, you know, being reached at once, you know, uh, where that's possible. But again, it's always the individual you look for. I think in, in we, we have, a, if we have a vision, for instance, let's Take our city for Christ. Let's say that. That's big, bold, meaningless, uh, probably. But anyway, say you have a big vision like that. And you think about how can we influence this city and so on. I think you've got to say, okay, let's take the city for Christ. Who is it that God is going to bring across my path that I can be an agent of his to lead to hmm. Christ? And uh, that's where it works. And, and, and it it gains momentum from that. Hmm. Beautiful. And, and I think, you know, during this time of, uh, of restriction and limitation, it's, it's hard for us. But it's worth noting that the fastest growing churches in the world are growing under extreme limitations. The church in Iran is the fastest growing church in the world, so it seems. Um, that doesn't mean it's a huge church, but it's it's growing fast within the context, and they're not able to meet. I have had some involvement 
with some Iranian believers from Iran. And, uh, you know, they're not able to meet. They can't, they're not allowed to sing because the neighbors might hear the music and realize something's going on. But you can have groups that meet in their home, two or three, and so on, and, and connect in different ways. But they can't have the mass gatherings, and yet it's growing fast. China, for many years, uh, grew fast under oppression. And so, you know, rather than saying, let's pray this COVID away, let's, let's, let's wait for the better days where we'll tread water until we get the light to go back to church. I don't know what's happening in BC, but here in Ontario, you know, there's still some limitations and people's churches never met, but there are other churches that are meeting that have a smaller body to deal with. Um, let's, let's see the opportunities that this may give. I don't know what they are, but that's why we keep, because there's no, there's no program to, to apply. It has to be that individual sensitivity to the spirit of God and to the people. Mm. And you connect those two and don't look for big things. Just look for something and let it have its effect. I wonder if you have any uh, thoughts on your heart for, for young pastors right now. A lot of young pastors listening and as you reflect back on years of ministry still in ministry still preaching and teaching but also depositing into leaders so much yeah what's on your heart today for yeah. young leaders i think keep your own tank full because you are speaking you know the principle such as i have i give to you that's what Peter said to the, to the man on the, who was begging the temple in Jerusalem in Acts 3. Such as I have, I give you. I sometimes wonder, if I said that to somebody, what I have, I'll give you. What's going to happen to them? What have I got? Because you only give what you've got. Hmm. And, and um, out, of the, out of your heart will flow rivers of living water, said Jesus. Not out of your study, not out of your abilities you're gifting it's out of your heart so what's going on in your heart and keeping your heart fresh so this means staying spiritual you don't feel spiritual most of the time you stay down but just keep dependent keep dependent on on, on god you know sometimes when i uh, marry a couple i will say to them you know there's two kinds of togetherness there's a side-by-side -side togetherness and there's a face-to-face -face togetherness. The side-by-side -side togetherness is you're moving in the direction together. And uh, others may join you on that aspect of your journey. Children might join you on that aspect of the journey. Uh, colleagues, family members might join you, but you're moving forward together. And then there's a face-to-face -face togetherness, which, which is private and nobody else is part of that. And that is when you, you know, you you are vulnerable with each other. You 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 share needs together. You know, you make love together. All the different components of that exclusive togetherness, the face-to-face -face togetherness. So now the big danger you face in your marriage would be that the side-to-by-side -side demands become so strong that you lose the face-to-face -face togetherness. You become colleagues rather than lovers and i think that's true in our relationship with god and i think particularly so in in christian leadership the mm -hmm. demands of the side we're workers together with god we're working side by side with god he is our colleague in, in a very real sense in fact uh, my wife uh, a few years ago when i was going through a very difficult time she said to me is jesus your friend and I said, oh, that's a good question. And I thought about it and I said, you know, he's my, he's my co-worker. I work together with him. He's my boss. I want to live under his lordship and leadership. Uh, he's my resource for all the things that I want to do. For apart from him, we can do nothing. But is he my friend? And I said, I don't think he's my friend. I think I've lost my friendship. And she said, I think you have. Hmm. And it was a great, uh, a great word to me. And I have hanging to my left. You can't see it. It just says, what a friend we have in Jesus. 
goes from that hymn. Yeah, it was a hymn of that name years ago. Just to keep reminding, what a friend. So keep your tank full, your emotional tank with Jesus, your, your, your spiritual tank. Whether that means reading three chapters of the Bible every day, that's between you and God. Whatever it is that, that works. Of course, we read scripture, but, you know, listening to podcasts, reading books, meditating, whatever it takes. Keep your own heart full because it's what comes out of your heart that will actually touch people, not what comes out of your lips. You can say the right things. But I've listened to preachers many times, and, and I thought that's, that's a good word, but it's dead. It's lifeless. It doesn't penetrate. I don't want to be judgmental, but it's got to come out of people's hearts. Hmm. People need to know what you're saying. You actually know what you're talking about. It's real in your own life. So I, I would say keep, keep your tank full um, and work out what it takes to do that. Some people take a retreat every few months for a few days, and that helps them. I, I never know what to do on a retreat, so it doesn't help me to go on my own somewhere. You know, my mind wanders. <laughs> You're not supposed to say that. Aren't we supposed to say we love long yeah. days of silence? And we're not supposed to say that. <laughs> my I, I like solitude. You know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an introvert, so I like solitude. I hear you. I love that. I feel a lot of comfort in you saying that. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I, I, I do. But keep your connections no, not just with God, it's with people as well. Because that's keep keep the keep the how I don't know what phrase to use for it. But when I say keep your tank full, your tank has to be full of not just your your dependence on God. I, I, I say dependence as a better word than any word that has emotional connotation. You can be dependent in the middle of a depression and crack. Sure. But yeah. keep your dependence on God. It's hmm. not I but Christ. Uh, keep that dependence and, um, and and go beyond the faces and words of the people you're dealing with to their hearts. Hmm. Well, I'm just so very grateful. Thank you so, so much for your time and for sharing. I feel like I could talk to you all afternoon. I'm just grateful for your wisdom and your experience and uh, would love to have you there was things that we wanted to chat about together that we had talked about, but didn't make it into the conversation. Yeah, yeah, um, so an- it must be another time that we'll do that. <laughs> but I just so appreciate your heart and your story. And uh, I wonder as we close, Charles, um, if you would pray for us. And I know that the us isn't in the room yet, but there, there'll be many who listen. Yeah, sure, uh, sure, sure, sure. Leading churches are yeah. long too. So I wonder if you'd pray for me as a young pastor, but also for all those who are listening. Father, thank you that uh, you know every heart who's listening to our words today. You know the fears that we have, the struggles we're in, sometimes the loneliness. We know leadership is very lonely, the misunderstandings, the the uh, confusion about our motives. All these things are battles that can put us down and weigh us down. We pray, Lord, that we will find our security in you but not just our security, but the uh, feeding of our hearts, the thirst of our hearts may be satisfied Mm. in you, that it will be true that out of our hearts will flow rivers of living water because we're thirsty, we have come to you and drunk. And uh, we pray, Lord, in all the words that we do say to people, our job is words that we, they're not words that are empty, but they close the spirit uh, of our hearts and they clothe the Holy Spirit as he ministers to people in their need and their situations. Thank you that you are at work. Mm-hmm. We have so many grounds to feel discouraged, but thank you for the individuals in whose hearts you're at work. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you will uh, encourage us and keep us trusting you and looking up. And uh, thank you, you indwell us, not just doing things in your name we're doing things in your strength and uh, thank you that you're always sufficient for that in Jesus name Amen How special is it to get to hear stories from a pastor who has served for decades in the church 
Man, so appreciated that interview. Thank you so much, Charles. Well, just a reminder again, we are moving to bi-weekly episodes for the next few months. So not next week, but two weeks from now, we have Drew Hyun coming on. Drew has been pastoring in New York for 16 years and is the pastor of Hope Church Midtown and founder of Hope Church NYC, which is a family of churches throughout New York. Now, if you want to be first to hear about the special announcement coming next week from our team, be sure to head to our website and sign up for our mailing list or be watching out on Instagram to see what we've got coming up. Hey, before you go, we have one last thing to share. Jason had a chance to sit down with Steve Brown, who is the president of Arrow Leadership. They have a vision to transform the leadership of ministry leaders. And Steve just came out with a new book about how leaders can make Jesus the center of their lives and leadership. So take a listen to this quick five-minute conversation between Jason and Steve. Well, hey, friends, I'm here with uh, Steve Brown, who's the president of Arrow Leadership, and he's just written a new book called Jesus Centered, which I think is an important book for our time. And we wanted to highlight this book and get a window into Arrow Leadership. So, Steve, thanks for taking time to hang out with us. And can you tell us a little bit about this project, why this was something that you felt was a necessary message for this time? Thanks, Jason. I am in awe of Jesus. That's kind of the bottom line. Um, I've read a lot of books on leadership and a lot of books on living and life. And I keep coming back to that Jesus lived different and he led different. Um, I came across this great quote by John Stott. And John Stott said, we, we talk about Alexander the Great or Napoleon the Great or Charles the Great, but not Jesus the Great. And John Stott goes on, he goes, Jesus is not the Great. He is the only. He has no rival, no successor. And in the midst of COVID or whatever space we're in, there's a, we can get distracted by a lot of different things. And we can even discount Jesus in the midst of it. Maybe we, we've heard of Jesus and we know Jesus so well that we kind of discount him. But I believe that if we have a fresh awe of Jesus, and if we can focus our eyes on him, then we'll be transformed by him. And if we're transformed by him, uh, then other people, are going to be transformed by him and us as well. Hmm. I feel like what I, what I like about this book and the premise of it is it's like a simple thing. Like Steve, you're, you make it sound so simple, but it's like a, it's like a fight every day as a follower of Jesus, as a disciple in the city, as a pastor to, to keep him center. And I just feel that I know that you've shaped your whole ministry and that's at the heart of the arrow. Um, maybe just speak really quickly to um, the, the battle to keep Jesus at the center when you're leading a church or you're leading a ministry or just trying to be a decent dad or mother. Yeah. Maybe speak to that. Yeah. There are so many distractions. I mean, my phone is feeding me distractions. My mind is there are so many challenges before us. Um, that it's easy to kind of get our eyes off of Jesus. And that's really the heart behind the book. How can we get our eyes back onto Jesus, mm. fixed on Jesus, uh, the author and perfecter of our faith? So the idea really of the book is three sections. How can I be led by Jesus? How can I live and lead like Jesus? And how mm. can I lead more to Jesus? So we kind of try and break it down because the first part is that we're a follower first. And for me, recognizing that Jesus is with me and that he's for me um, have been really profound insights. I mean, they're, they're simple, but at the same time, they're profound because I was so busy doing stuff for Jesus that I, I missed recognizing that he's with me. He wants to do stuff with me, not me doing stuff for him. He wants to do stuff with me, which includes putting the kids to bed, which includes going for a run later today, which includes preaching at church. So that idea of Jesus with us, I think, which is Emmanuel, right? That's what we talk about at Christmas. We just mm -hmm. kind of, it's hard to remember that the rest of the year. So there's some practices in there that'll help us to do that in the book. Amazing. Um, you and I got connected through two people in common, uh, Ken Shigematsu and Mark Buchanan, who are also two other voices in this space of drawing uh, followers of Jesus and leaders to that abiding, consistent place. And I know that's also the heart of 
uh, Arrow leadership is to make Jesus-centered leaders. Can you just tell us a little bit about what Arrow is up to these days? Yeah, the ministry Arrow leadership, the heartbeat for the last 30 years has been developing Jesus-centered leaders. So leaders who are led more by, lead more like, and lead more to Jesus. So we love the chance to walk alongside Christian leaders, uh, whether they're in the church, whether they're in nonprofit world, or even the marketplace, and really creating a safe place for leaders. Uh, We all need safe places, and it's really hard for leaders sometimes to find a safe place. And so a safe place, but not a soft place. We want to grow and be sharpened and polished like an arrow. Um, And that's really the heartbeat of arrows, trying to create safe places that aren't soft for leaders to be transformed with Jesus at the center of all of their life. Hmm. I love it. I'm so thankful for the work that you're doing and for sharing so much of that in this book. And I hope you'll come and join us for a longer conversation sometime soon. Thanks so much. Thanks so much.